Well, have you ever had a good start that went from bad to worse? That was my Thursday. Thursday started amazing. It was so good. So there was all these things with college ministry that we were working on, all these new ideas that we were kind of pinning out and getting together. And I'm on the phone, like calling all these people, setting up meetings, people I'm going to meet with and talk with. I'm so excited about this coming year in college ministry. And I'm, I'm pumped. And, and I'm in this meeting and I get a phone call from my wife. And, uh, and, and I, I let it go to voicemail because I was finishing up this conversation. And, and then I looked down at my phone and immediately she texts like three times, 911, call right now. Uh, you know, like something like that. And, and so I'm like, okay, great. I got to call her back. And so I, I call her. And, and as I'm, as I talk to her, she goes, yeah, uh, I blew out a tire, me and the four kids. And, uh, and I'm in the Tower Point HEB parking lot, uh, kind of at the back. Come now, right? And so I'm like, okay, I got in there. So I jump into my car and I start driving over to that HEB and, and I pull out and I see her parked in the back of the parking lot near this large uh, open median right there. And, and I see the car parked there and I walk over to kind of assess the damage, right? And I look at the tire and I don't know what happened, but some sort of animals or road demons like came and attacked the tire because there was a, ga- a rectangular gouge and flapped open on the edge of her tire. And I'm like, they Maybe there's no fixing this one, right? This one's gone. And, uh, and because I'm the, the man of the family, um, I had to change my own tire. Uh, it's not because I want to. It's because Hillary doesn't know how to. And, and, uh, and I'm not uh, mechanically inclined um, in any sort of the definition, but I'm going to give it a go because I have to. And the kids are watching at this point. And, uh, and so she unloaded all the children out of the car. They're playing there on that grass median, running back and forth, like going crazy. And everyone, all the cars are just like zooming past them because everyone's got to get their food now in H-E-B parking lot. And they're all freaking out. And I'm sitting there and I jack up the car and the kids are running crazy. And I'm like, you just need to stay away. Let daddy work. And I jack up the car a little bit and I go to loosen up the tire and, and I, I get all the bolts off and, and I go to pull the tire off the car and it's fine and I set it down and I get the little donut tire to put on. And right as I slide that donut tire onto the bolts, the jack slipped off, the whole car fell and Kevin was scared. <laughs> and, uh, and it was fine. It, the tire caught it on, on the uh, you know, bolts that were standing there and, and so I'm like, this is horrible. I hate Thursday. And, and so I go to jack up the car again, and I put the rest of the bolts on. And uh, by this time, Hillary had called one of the, uh, one of the tire places near there. And, and they're like, yeah, uh, don't bring in the, t- the car right now because it'll be like a 20-hour wait, and we don't want your kids running around here. And I were like, Ugh. I'm like, fine, just take the kids home. I'll deal with it later. And so I get in my car, and I start driving back to work, and I'm driving up Texas. And I just cross over 2818, and I hear this, <gasps> I'm like, that didn't sound good. And then, I, then, then I, as I'm continuing to drive, all of a sudden you hear that of the, of the tire that just lost all of its air. And I'm like, love Thursdays. I pull into the parking lot of this uh, auto shop and, and they kind of they help me out. And I'd call up my wife. I'm like, guess what the good news is, babe? Two tires, 20 minutes. This is a great day. And, uh, and, and I look at it. I'm like, I'm like, oh God, why would you do this? And at that moment, I just said what all of you would say. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God for these scenarios that you put me into. No, no, no one wants to say that, but then you read, if, if you're a Christian, you read verses of the Bible in moments like that, and, and you see a ridiculous response, like 
James chapter one, verse two, it says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. Oh, okay. Yeah, count it all joy. Be happy, be excited when your tires blow two by two all the way through your day. Like, should you be happy about that? Is that realistic or is that unrealistic? Well, I'll tell you what, what I love about the Psalms is because in the Psalms, we get the real life emotional expressions of God's people as they struggle to walk with God. We get people really struggling as they're really walking with God. And I love all the authors of of the Psalms, but I love in particular the author David. Because in the life of David, you get three windows into his life. You get First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles where you, where you see him live his life as the king of the nation of Israel. But more than that, you get to see his emotional expressions in the Psalms. You get to see him struggle as he walks through his trials. One commentator writing of the Psalms writes this. He says, the book of Psalms is God's prescription for a complacent church. Because through it, it reveals how great, wonderful, magnificent, wise, and utterly awe-inspiring he is. The book of Psalms can revolutionize our devotional life, our family patterns, and fellowship, and the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. I love the Psalms because it can inspire us and instruct us to live for God even in the midst of the trials we face. And we're going to look at Psalm 34. And it's written in a moment of David's life when he is probably at his lowest low. And I love David because he's a warrior poet. I mean, he's one that's to go and fight as a leader of the army. And then he's going to come back and pin out his, his deepest emotional frustrations as he chooses and tries to follow God. And in this moment in David's life, like I said, it's one of his lowest lows. And to catch up to speed on the context, I would say this. If you don't know who David is, he's one of the greatest kings of, of the Old Testament, of the nation of Israel. And he was crowned king. He was anointed king early in his life. He was a young shepherd boy watching his dad's sheep. And Samuel came to anoint a new king. And he brings all of, of, of the sons of David's brothers in front and says, hey, which one of these boys is going to be king? And, and Samuel passes over all of them and says, God hasn't chosen any of these. Do you, do you have another son? He says, yeah, there's David, but dude's watching sheep. I mean... He's with the sheep, you know, smelly, this little guy, he's not going to be good. And he says, hey, bring him in. And in that moment, Samuel anoints him as king. He's got great potential. There's a great opportunity ahead of him. And it doesn't just stay there long. Soon, his brothers are, are at a war. They're fighting the Philistines and one particular enemy, Goliath, the giant. And David's on a cheese run, right? He's bringing snacks and goodies to his bros. And he gives the cheese and he's like, what's up with big fella, Right? And they're like, like, yeah, that's the terrifying giant. He's going to kill all of us. And we're just standing here trying not to wet our pants while that guy is terrifying all of us. And David goes, what's up with that guy? He's like, why does he defy the armies of the living God? I can take him down. And he goes over and to Saul, the current king. And, and Saul's like, here, try to wear my armor. And David's like, I can't wear this. I'm just going to go with my sling. When a lion or a bear tried to attack your father's, your, your, your servant's sheep, Man, I grabbed that dude by the beard and beat him on the head and I took that sheep and we were safe. I'll take that guy down. He's defying the armies of God. I'm gonna go after him. And he takes him down with a sling on a stone. One of the most epic moments. So epic that Saul's son, Jonathan, sees David do this and says, no way this just happened. He runs to David's feet, bows his knee and says, I wanna align my life with you. My allegiance is with you. 
And then he gets a job promotion, which you would think he would, right? Saul literally puts him in charge of his army. And he sends him out into the war, and he has success wherever he goes. Everyone is excited about David. And not only does he get a new job, he gets a new friend, he gets the girl, right? He marries Saul's daughter, Michael, and it is amazing. She loves him, and the people love him. They start writing songs about him. See, you know when they, you've made it. When they start writing songs about your life, they're writing, Saul has slain his thousands, David, his tens of thousands, right? So the kids are all bumping in the club to the new song written about David's life. And everyone's like, this guy's on cloud nine. I mean, if this is, if this is school, this is 4.0. If this is work, it's the promotion. Is this with your kids? It's like they're obeying the words you say, right? I mean, he is riding on cloud nine. Everything is at David's back. The wind is behind his sails. Literally, Robert Alter writes that in this section of 1 Samuel, chapter 18 through 20, David is the object of the word love. Everybody loves David, except Saul. Saul hears this song, and he doesn't like this song. This song's stupid. And so he tries to take David down. The first thing he does is he tries to kill David with a spear. David walks in, playing him a little music. Saul tries to launch a spear at him, misses, and David's like, ah, Saul's having a bad day, right? He comes back a little later on. Saul tries to kill him again. David runs to Jonathan and says, your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, whatever, dude, you're, you're overplaying this. It's not that big of a deal. He goes and talks to his dad and finds out, no, no, dad's serious. There's only a step between you and death. And so he runs. He runs to his wife, trying to get his wife's protection, figure out from his wife, oh, what, what do I need to do about your dad? How, how are we going to do this? And, and his wife betrays him. Then he runs to his mentor, to Samuel. To Samuel, please, you got to help me out. You got to do something. Samuel's like, I can't help you either. And then he runs to the high priest. He runs to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech will later, later be killed by Saul for helping David. And then he runs to Gath. Goliath was a Philistine from Gath. That's the capital of the enemy. And it's in Gath that he's looking for safety. No one will be looking for me here. He's there, and he's recognized. He's the dude they sang songs about, right? They knew him. They literally, they quote the song. They said, wait a minute, isn't this David? Aren't don't they sing songs about him? Like Saul is slave is thousands, David is 10,000. I hate that guy. He killed our dude. And, and they go to attack him. And David, to protect his identity, feigns insanity. He starts drooling down, of his, down his face. He's like scratching on the wall. like rah, rah, And they're like, and suddenly the king goes, do I not have enough crazy people in this kingdom? Like, I don't need this guy too. And in this moment, David lost everything. He lost his job. He lost his best friend. He lost his wife. He lost his mentor. And lastly, he loses even his self-respect. You ever been a moment when you go from the highest high to the lowest low? How do you deal with God when he creates those environments in your life? Why does God do that? I'll tell you why. David's in his 20s. He will become king in his 30s. And this decade, God is going to carve something into him. And it's something that we need carved into us. And it's character. And there's three things, three character qualities from Psalm chapter 34 that God is carving into David that we need carved into us. 
And the first thing that we see is this, that, that God is carving into him dependence. Dependence. Read with me in Psalm 34, verse 1. It says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This actually surprises me. The first thing that David does is he praises God in all circumstances, which is very surprising. That's not my natural response. My natural response is, thank you, God, for blowing up my tires in Jesus' name. Like, I don't do that, right? But there's, there's an insight that David lays here in verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. In order to learn how to bless God at all times, literally in all circumstances, it means you have to experience a variety of circumstances. In order to praise God when it's good, it's easy. But to praise God when it's bad, that's hard. And what God wants to teach David is I want you to be dependent on me. I want you to cling to me even when it hurts. See, he's training him like a loving dad. I was, uh, read a book um, several years ago, and it was called Crazy for the Storm. And it's about a kid who had a crazy, adventurous dad. And the kid was in a plane crash when he was 11 years old, crashed at the top of a mountain, and survived, made, it, made his way down, and survived this crazy, horrific ordeal. And the book is about how he did it. And the, what gave this kid the tools to survive that trial was the many trials that his dad put him in. See, his dad was an adventurer. His dad was crazy for the storm. And so he would take his kid and put him into impossible environments. He would take him out surfing with gigantic, huge waves that no one could survive and be like, swim, boy, right? He would take him to the top of mountains and say, ski down, dude. And so he, he would put him in these impossible environments to train this kid how to survive in these ridiculous moments. He put him in a variety of circumstances so he could learn to survive. See, God of the Bible is a, is a good dad. And he wants to train you to depend on him, to rest on him in every circumstance in life. That means you get to be in every type of circumstance in life. Hebrews 12 says it this way. Have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Ugh. Hebrews twelve eleven. For the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Oh, I can agree with that. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, God is training David. He's sticking him in trial so that he would be dependent on him in the midst of the trial, but not only to praise God in all circumstances, secondly, to seek God in all circumstances. Verse four, it says this, now I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all this trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. You see, God is hammering dependence into David's life. And it's on the anvil of life's trials that God hammers the character of dependence. You see, David can't control his future. David can't control 
his circumstances. But what he can control is what he seeks. What he can control is what he looks to. And verse 4 literally says, seek God in all, in all circumstances. I sought the Lord and he answered me. The word seek literally means to beat a path and travel that same path over and over again. Some of you have dogs and your dogs live in the backyard and they have one path around that backyard. They beat a path literally around that backyard near the fence as they bark at other dogs, right? They beat that same path into the ground. God's saying, look, I want you to beat a path toward me. I want you to come to me in every one of your life's circumstances dependent on me. And that path is, is a straight line that you're beating it and pursuing me. And I won't waste any one of your pains, I promise. Francis, Frank Peretti writes it this way. He says, God doesn't waste an ounce of our pain or a drop of our tears. Suffering doesn't come our way for no reason. And he seems especially efficient at using it, using what we endure to mold our character. If we are malleable, he takes our bumps and bruises and shapes them into something beautiful. You see, God purposefully puts you into trial to make us dependent that we would cling to him. But there's a second thing he wants to drive into our our character, and it's to be wise, to fear the Lord. Verse 8 says it this way, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He uses a word picture here that's really interesting. He says, young lions. And he says this, even the young lions suffer want and go hungry. What's his point? Have you ever seen a young lion? They're terrifying. It's a predator in its prime. That's a young lion, right? They're strong. Lions can be uh, from 300 to 500 pounds. They have a bite force of over 650 pounds per square inch. They're deadly. If you meet one in the African safari, too late, right? They're, they're deadly. They're terrifying. They're a predator in its prime, and they usually hunt in packs, But he says something really interesting here. He says, even the young lions go hungry. You know, I love athletics. Like I I, I love uh, training and I love the, like watching the sport, watching sports and and all sorts of sports. I love the NBA finals that are going to be going on in a week and, and I love it. But it's funny when you listen to the language that athletes use to describe themselves and describe the way they compete. They use predator language. They say something like, oh, he's a predator on the court, right? He's a predator on the field. He's got that killer instinct, right? And that works as long as it works. But sometimes it turns on you. Kobe Bryant is a great example of that. He had that killer instinct to to always want to win, but at the same time, by the end of his career, none of the other players wanted to play with him because he was was so self-focused. See what What David is trying to tell us is this, that we're not as strong as we think. And you may be a young lion in your prime, but your prime can take you down when you lose your edge. Just watch football careers. Watch our our, our, uh, pop artists. When the spotlight fades, they become unhinged. They don't know how to deal with their life. You may lose your edge or you may miss an opportunity. 
You may be going for that job. You're, you're, you're young and, and virile and you're like, I have my whole life, my career ahead of me. And, and the opportunity goes to someone else. And, and you've got to deal with the fact that you can't control your own destiny. You're not as strong as you think. Or the worst is that you get what you most want and realize that it's completely empty. Boris Becker, famous tennis player, he says this. I won Wimbledon twice before. Once when I was the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. But it's like the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything. And yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. One writer, Jack Higgins, who wrote several uh, bestsellers, writes this. When you get to the top you realize there's nothing there. See, the first part of wisdom that we got to gain is you're not as strong as you think. And even if you get everything you attain, you get that and you miss God, you will find it to be empty. And so the first piece of wisdom that he wants to hammer into us is you're not as strong as you think. Jeremiah 9, 23 says it this way. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you're gonna boast in anything, you boast in this, that you know God. And that's the second piece that we need. To be wise means we commit our life to his path. He says this, In verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. What man is there who desires life and love many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You literally, to seek peace and pursue it means that you line your life with the purposes of God. That means you hold on to the purposes of God. You commit yourself to that path and you don't let go. And it's when you're weak that you realize how much you need to hold on to God. Several years ago, I took my, uh, my seven-year-old daughter. She was five at the time, ice skating for the first time. And I'm terrible at anything involving wheels, blades, that sort of thing. I'm just horrible at it. And so I tell my daughter, I'm like, okay, we're going to put our skates on and we're going to go over to Wolfpin and there's going to be a cone for you to hold on to. And so you just got to hold on to that cone and scoot yourself around. It'll be great. And she starts, she's like, I can't do it, daddy. And I'm like, that's what I was afraid of. I can't do it either. Okay. And, uh, and so we, uh, I'm like, okay, uh, let's go talk to the people, you know, up front and ask them. And so they gave me a walker, you know, for people that have any major injuries or people that can't skate, right? And uh, they have this walker and, and we bring it out. And so it's very masculine at this point in time. I'm feeling really good about myself as a dad. And we go over to the, the ice rink and, uh, and you, my little daughter's right there in the center and I'm standing behind her. And then we just start kind of inching our way around the ice rink on the outside. Everyone's very excited about watching us do this. And we're inching our way around. And, and after a little while, like I get a little more confident, right? I'm like, oh, I got this. I know what I'm doing, right? And so I kind of move to the outside and let her be on the inside. I'm kind of skating. And then suddenly I'm like, it's all over. And I like fall, like hit to the ground. And and I'm like, you're okay, baby. Okay. And I'm I'm hitting the ground and I'm like, this is horrible because I thought I was strong and immediately I sunk. See, that is true in every one of our lives. 
as soon as you think you're strong and you can do it apart from God, when you remove yourself from his path, you'll sink, you'll fall. And I tell you what, even in easy times, it's still time to cling to God. And I don't know what you're going to be doing this summer, but I'll tell you what, summer seems to be a time where it's a little bit easier to do different things. And it can be easy to lose your grip on God and try to do it your own way. But can I challenge you with something this summer? Can you renew a commitment to to study the word? That you would actually open up your Bible, you would travel with us through the Psalms and you would dig deeply, that you would open up your app, your phone app and, and dig deeply into the word of God this summer that it would be a time of growth for you. Or secondly, that you would really seek community. It's amazing um, when summer occurs, all of your friends leave, right? And so you get an opportunity to make new friends this summer, right? They're right here next to you, right? You can invite someone to lunch now, right? And you can develop a new community, revive that part of your life that you would seek the word of God and the people of God and together grow to be stronger, You see, David commits himself to God's path even in the midst of a trial of life. And the third thing that we see that he learns is that David is filled with hope. He is hope-filled at the end. I think this is crucial because you can be dependent and you can grow in wisdom, but then you can then be bitter, right? You'd be like, I know I need God and I'm a horrible person, you know, and you could just be bitter at life. But that's not David. David isn't bitter about his dependence or about where God is bringing him. He is hope filled all the way through. Verse 15, it says this, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he hears their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off their memory from the earth. But when the righteous cry for health, the Lord hears. He believes that even in the midst of trial, God is still listening to him. God will still respond. You see, but for some of us, we're, we, we don't have a hopeful look. We're more sorrowful in nature. Ray Bradbury, writer, writes it this way. Some people turn sad awfully young. No special reason, it seems. But they seem almost to be born that way. They bruise easier. They tire faster. They cry quicker. They remember longer. And as I say, get sadder, younger than anyone else in the world. I know, for I'm one of them. You see, some people let the circumstances they face beat them up because they never learn to look up. Some of us let the circumstances we face in life beat us up because we never learn to say, I can trust God. This isn't the end of the story. No matter what trial you're facing, it isn't the end of the story. There is hope because we know this, God hears and God responds. God hears your cry and God responds to your cry. But some people would say, I don't think so. I think if you look at the the course of the world, the pain that the world has, there is no reason to hope. One of those authors is an atheist named Richard Dawkins. He writes this, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are gonna get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason for it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And I read that word and I said, that is true if God isn't real. That storyline 
could be true if God doesn't intervene. But even in this text, we see there's an intervention of God all the way throughout it, and especially at the end. Because there's a new word that's introduced. It's the word righteous in verse 19. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of, out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now you read that and you're like, okay, Kevin, I've had a broken bone. I've had broken situations. I'm trying to pursue God and yet I I encounter some struggle. You got to help me with that. Well, David's writing better than he sees. You see, he's referring not to merely his physical circumstances. He's referring to the righteous one that will come. See, Romans tells us that no one's righteous, not even one. But there is one who came. And he took the punishment of sin on himself. He was the righteous one that cried out. He is the righteous one that stood in our place for our sins. He is the one that took the worst that humanity could offer on his own body. The wrath of God was poured out on him. And the punishment that brought us peace went on him. You see, our story doesn't end with whatever trial you're facing. And all you have to do is look at the cross. Because Friday was bad, but Sunday was coming. There was something bad on Friday, but Friday wasn't the end of the story. There was a new hope through the resurrection that he was bringing. You see, the world isn't one of blind, pitiless indifference. God sees and God hears and God will respond. C.S. Lewis, in the end of his book, The Last Battle, writes it this way. All of their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia were only but the cover and title page. Now at last, we are at the beginning of chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. You see, Dawkins is right if Christ didn't come. Dawkins is right if God doesn't have a plan. Dawkins is right if God doesn't have a promise. And some of us, we we forget what we need to remember and we remember what we need to forget. We forget God's promises and we focus on our problems. And God's saying, look, I sent my son to save you. This is a deposit of what I'm bringing. This is one step in the hope that I'm rescuing all of this world out of. You may have trial, but your trial should bring you to the place where you have hope. Do you know that? Have you reached out to Jesus? Personally, that believing that he died in your place for your sins, have you let him rescue you out of the, the horrible mire of your life. I remember the, a picture that solidifies this in my mind, and it was with my Uncle David. Now, my Uncle David died uh, about a year ago, but uh, when he was younger, he was a big man, burly and strong. And we were looking at houses in this neighborhood, and uh, me and my cousin Greg were playing on this, uh, this cement pond, like a cement slope into this pond, and we're playing the game of see how far you can go without falling in. And so we're kind of edging ourselves on the edge of that kind of cement pond. And uh, we re- suddenly we realize uh, there's algae covering all of this cement. 
And so I slide, because I was dumb number one, and I slide directly into the water, and I'm trying to claw my way up the side of this, and I scream out to my cousin, Greg, Greg, help me! And he's like, okay. He's like seven years old. He runs over, tries to grab me, and I pull him in too. He's not strong to pull me out, and we're both in there like, oh my gosh, we're floating to danger. We're going to die. And we scream, scream, help, help. And my Uncle David heard our cry and responded immediately. Now, he was a big dude, and so he starts barreling his way toward us. And, uh, and I was afraid, but kind of laughing because it was funny to see him run. And he starts barreling his way toward us, and he reaches out with his big, strong hand and pulls my cousin out and then pulls me out. I mean, it's like he lifted me out of the water. You know, like he just ripped me out of the water. And it was amazing. I'm like, and he goes, you boys all right? And I'm like, yeah, Uncle Dave, that was awesome. You know, and he just completely saved us. And I tell you what, that is what Jesus will do for you. That is the theme of this entire psalm. He's like, he's like, God's got you. Cry out to him. He's going to grab you. Reach to him. He'll save you. He's not going to leave you condemned. He's going to save his righteous kids. And why are they righteous? Not because of what they do, but because of what I'm going to do on the cross. His righteousness forgives you of all of your sin, purchases for you new life, and gives you the freedom of knowing there's a dad who loves you and wants to live life with you. You're not done. Your trial doesn't determine your future. God does. And one of my favorite promises that I want solidified in your mind and my mind is from Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39. And it's my big ender. Y'all ready for this? This is Paul's big ender in this section. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Can anyone separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness. I don't know why they're naked. Um, Or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know Jesus this morning? Have you put your faith wholly and solely in him? Have you fallen on your face in front of him and said, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I've been trying to live my own way, but I trust in you. And I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to trust in you. And I'm going to lay my life on you because I know you're the dad who loves me. And you're good. Have you done that this morning? Are you doing that as a daily part of your life? I hope you do. Because there is no other hope than in his outreached hand. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you so much that You took David out of the pit. You led him into the pit and then you pulled him out. I don't know for many of us, we are, I don't, we're we're walking through life circumstances. We don't always know why we struggle the way that we do. But you do. And you're not there to condemn us. You're there to save us if we'll just reach out our hand. So I pray that you would help us. If we don't know you, Jesus, today would be the day of salvation. We would trust you that you died in our place for our sins. You are rescuing us to live a new life. 
For others of us, if we may have believed in you, but we still seem to be, seem to be living life on our own terms in our own way, I pray that you would bring us close. We would see that the trials are meant for us to cling more tightly to you. And we would trust you as the good dad who's leading us home. We love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Hey, you guys have a great weekend.